My daddy was a miner, and I'm a miner's son. He'll be with you, fellow workers, until this battle's won. Tell me which side are you on? Welcome to the Damnificast, a podcast about the show Damnation, and a special welcome to all of you for supporting us here on Patreon, or as we like to call it, the Magnificast After Dark. Uh, Matt even says a couple of F-words in this episode, which is why we've got to put it behind the paywall. It can't be trusted. We can't leak it to our innocent uh, innocent sheep. Think about how many tweets we would get about people being mad about the F-word. Oof. <laughs> so still here with that strong uh christian swear caucus uh we're all about it on this podcast so get the get your get your lips uh spicy and ready to curse yeah don't tell your uh, youth <laughs> that's pastor. right uh so damnation in case you don't know uh which would be weird that you're listening to the second episode is a tv show from 2017 <laughs> um that was originally in usa but it's not anymore it's on netflix so that's where you should watch it uh about striking farm workers in 1930s iowa led by a revolutionary preacher so, you know, it's extremely up our alley. Uh, if you haven't seen the show, you should. Um, we're going to talk about the third episode next week, so, like, you can catch up. Uh, in this episode, we'll be talking about episode two, uh, which is called Which Side Are You On? And to join us this week is Jared Ware from the podcast Millennials Are Killing Capitalism. Um, so he's going to talk through the episode with us and uh, give us his uh, criticism and uh, commentary. Yeah, you might remember Jared from episode 76 of the Magnificast, where we talked to Jared about the 2018 prison strike. Uh, he was doing some journalism around it and organizational work and uh, just had a lot of really helpful things to kind of contextualize all that, which is also an episode that you may want to re-listen to. Um, Jared talks a little more about abolition and how some themes around abolitionism uh, play out in the show, too, which is really great. Uh, Jared's involved in that kind of abolitionist work, and you can find him on Twitter at jbware, but it's spelled J-A-Y-B-E-W-A-R-E. Just a real good pun on his own name. That's the kind of thing we like around here. <laughs> All right. Well, here it goes. Oh, man, I just realized that's like also the intro to Keenan and Kel. Ah, <laughs> uh, here it goes. So maybe before we get to the episode, uh, what do you just like about the show overall? Like what drew you into this uh, particular story or um, yeah, I don't know. What did you like? Yeah. I mean, I reached out to you all as soon as I saw that you were doing something related to this um, because I really, when I found the show, I was, I was really surprised initially. I didn't know that um, I didn't know about it when it came out on USA. Um, I think they did a really crappy job of promoting it. Um, but, um, it, you know, when it was on Netflix and I discovered it, I checked it out and it was kind of at first a little bit hard to believe that there was a show like it and sort of how you talked about it in the first episode. Um, probably the most interesting thing about it is that, um, at least primarily it feels like it's on the right side of these issues from our perspective. Um, and you know, most stuff that covers communism or communist movements or heavy labor party, you know, organizing um, tends to come from the sort of right wing side, right? The anti-communist side um, that gets portrayed within um, films or TV shows. So this was unique 
in some regards in that class struggle is um, promoted as a positive thing and the the people who are trying to uh, push that forward are also seen in a mostly positive light. Um, and other than, you know, like, sorry to bother you, uh, there's not a lot of modern media that you can say that about, um, at least that comes down as clearly on the sort of pro labor side of things as this movie does. I mean, seriously. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a, such a cool and unusual show. <laughs> a nice surprise. <laughs> Yeah, it is. And I guess the other thing that I also like about it is you alluded to this in the first episode, too, um, is that there's a lot of historical stuff that's actually uh, is actually accurate or fairly accurate within it. Um, and so it's not just in um, some sort of, you know, it's not divorced from reality. It's not completely divorced from history. Obviously, it's fictionalized, but um, you know, a, the, a lot of the sort of, especially on the sort of anti-communist side, a lot of the forces that are at play are, are were real historical forces. Um, and then, you know, some of the strikes that it's alluding to also were real. Um, and I think a lot of the kind of strategic stuff is, is interesting and tactical stuff that it plays out is also, you know, based on things that happened. So it's, it's pretty cool from that lens. Yeah, for sure. One of my favorite parts of the show is we'll get to it in the next few weeks, but the penny auctions, mm -hmm. that's like a historical thing that happened that blew my mind. But anyways, I don't want to say too much about that because Dean hasn't seen the episode yet. Yeah, Jay, to get on the same page here, you've seen the entire show. Is that right? So I actually haven't finished it yet. Um, oh, OK, so I've watched probably eight episodes of it. It in my opinion of it as a whole, like it does slow down a little bit in the middle and get a little bit off track in a couple of the episodes, I feel like from the overarching kind of storyline. But, you know, it does. I've started to get back into it more and it, it does start to like repick up on some of the themes that I think it's it should be based in. Well, cool. Dean, do you want to read the episode summary? Yeah, yeah. Why not? Uh, all right, so we were originally going to go to the USA website because it turns out they have a reading guide for each episode, which I thought was very funny. <laughs> uh, who writes them? I don't know, but they strike me as like, you know, when you're like in uh, middle school or something and you watch a movie and your teacher passes out something that came from, I don't know, like the, the a publisher. It's like an educational guide to test your like movie comprehension. It like feels like that. So like gives you <laughs> like a big chunk of plot and then a bunch of like takeaways or, or summaries. Anyway, it, it's cool. I'm, I guess I'm glad that someone did it, but it's too much for this podcast. So uh, we're taking this directly from Wikipedia <laughs> for better or for worse. Uh, and here's the summary. It's a bit long, but we'll get through it. <clears throat> Episode two, Damnation. Oh, shoot. Dang. Hang on. What's the title of it? I got to figure that out. The title is which side are you on? Great. All right. Creeley investigates what his brother's life is like now. Meanwhile, young reporter D.L. Sullivan. I love that name. Collects the townspeople's opinions on the strikes. The anti-union vigilante group Black Legion make an appearance at the church and shoot at the parishioners. Meanwhile, Bessie pays off the local newspaper editor, asking him not to publish anything about Sam Raleigh's death or crucifixion. And she begins to collect information on other strikes around the country. In nearby Des Moines, corrupt banker Calvin Rumpel, the guy we love to hate, uh, meets with the mysterious Martin Eggers Hyde, PhD, the man who is the, the guy we love to hate more. <laughs> That's right. 
he has a PhD in being a hateable guy. Uh, the man who has assigned Creeley to stop the farmer strike. Hyde instructs Rumpel to begin auctioning off farms to the highest bidder. Connie Nunn continues on her mission to find Seth while also disrupting the miners' strikes in Harlem, Kentucky. She kills a strike leader, leaving his young daughter Brittany as an orphan. Seth organizes a protest march with the farmers and hunts down one of the Black Legion members, but refrains from killing him when he sees a cross formed in the light on the floor. It's also revealed that Bessie is the sheriff's illegitimate child. That's a, that's a big uh, spoiler there. Uh, Amelia meets Creeley when he breaks into her house and warns her to leave Seth and take her cause elsewhere. He leaves her with a photograph of a younger Seth with a mysterious young woman. Perfect. That's everything that happens. Whew, a lot going on there. Okay, so to get started then, before we get into all of the specific scenes that we want to talk about, because there's a lot of them, um, let's just talk about some like overall takes or the big feels of the episode. Um, I don't know. Was it good? What did you like? What didn't work for you, etc. Uh, Jay, since you're our guest, you can go first. What um, what was your overall, what was your big take from the episode? What did you really like about it? Um, there's, a, you know, so I have some like random comments written down. I, I, you know, I, I think in terms of the overall take on the episode, um, you know, I think it's a good expansion of the first episode, which was, I'm sure, the pilot. Um, you know, there's a couple of things that I thought um, were interesting within it kind of the the role of the the press you know like the D.L. Sullivan's character um and and then also the editor which is Burt Babbage right who's his uh yeah who's like the kind of the no man or the he, he ends up getting paid off in the episode to not report on activities that are going on um I think one of the things that I really like in this episode and and about the show on the whole is that the actions of people within it um, are mostly tied to like some material stake, right? So it's not just that um, you don't have people acting on like lofty um, sort of ideals, right? Of certain ideas of freedom or liberation, right? But um, that they're actually like, you know, you have all the farmers obviously trying to to organize the strike, um, you have the strike breaker, um, who's obviously got a financial interest. There's a point in it where he says, um, Bessie asks him like, which side are you on? And, um, you know, he says, I don't have a side, I have a job. Um, and, you know, and then you have, um, you know, what gets revealed right in that conversation between Martin Eggers Hyde, PhD, and um, the... Uh, I appreciate you uh, referencing his PhD. Yeah. He worked hard for it. You have to. He, I mean, he. it always is referenced, right? Um, and uh, <laughs> and uh, what's the... I'm, I'm pretty... Rumpel? Is that his name? Yeah, Calvin Rumpel. Right. Yeah. Um, what gets referenced in their conversation, right, is like you really... There's actually like... A, a discussion right about a shift of in the mode of production you know and, mm-hmm. and, and in terms of like farming becoming more automated right and the depression and the tactics being used um by the kind of banking and and ruling class um to really like render um you know rural farmers useless basically um and and so that's an interesting um 
there's a funny moment in there when he talks about Twinkies as like the wave of the future or whatever. But, um, yeah, you know, um, which is actually kind of sadly true, I suppose. Um, (laughs) but you know, like I appreciated that, that like a lot of times when this material gets dealt with, you know, you sort of have like the strike breakers or the, the Pinkertons or whatever, right. Treated as sort of like positive figures, right. As a fighting for, you know, for economic freedom, freedom, free markets. And, you know, (laughs) um, and, uh, you know, here you actually see that what you have are like sneaky capitalists behind the scenes, like, you know, trying to screw over poor people basically. Um, and I like that the that you know the main characters see that, um, and I really like the figure. Um, is it Amelia? Yeah, yeah, that's Seth's wife. Yeah, I mean, I think she is in many ways one of the most interesting characters. Not as developed as I would like in the series, but um, you know, part of like what I wonder as I watch this is. Like, I want them to talk about, like, what do they have a party affiliation? You know, um, <laughs> that's sort of my, you know, like, is this CPUSA we're watching or is it IWW is kind of like what I keep, you know, and I think it's, <laughs> I think it's left vague probably on purpose. Um, but that's kind of the my own curiosity in it. But, yeah, I mean, those are kind of my big the, the things that sort of stood out to me, um, you know, and then there's other small things, but I'm sure we'll get into more of the like individual things later yeah totally well that all sounds about right to me um just just like you said this episode like you know it it just widens the sort of like field of like what happened in the first episode right in the first episode we learned that there's this um there's this you know tension between the the bank and the farm that the bank is price fixing the farmers so that they can't you know make any money and then they're going to foreclose in their houses so that they can sell the land to somebody else or whatever right and like we have these like and and even like in the the sermon that pastor seth gives he has like lots of like you know big words and a strong rhetoric about uh breaking uh breaking people's fucking back um (laughs) but then in this episode we actually get to see some of like what that looks like and i think that's really that was like really important to me that like it's not just like um you know we're gonna we're gonna break their fucking back and now like we're gonna do a montage or something through like uh, <laughs> through striking or through marching but it's like it shows you like what that really looks like and the tensions that are shot up in that like and the and the black legion being a part of it and how like right. race is now an element of it and it just um it takes everything that happened in episode one and just broadens it way out um to make it something you know big and expansive and really cool dean what do you think yeah, no, I, I felt similarly. Um, it's funny that you mentioned, Jay, the party affiliation stuff, because I wondered that same thing, especially at the end of this episode. Uh, just kind of, I don't know, thinking a lot more about, like, why would they feel sort of compelled to have this mission or whatever, especially if they're just, like, lone revolutionaries. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and, yeah, you, I mean, this is the height, right, of uh, the CPUSA and the IWW. So, yeah, who knows? Maybe, maybe if they get a second season, they can find a way to get into it. But... Yeah, I mean, all those things really stuck out to me. A few other things that really kept me thinking were that continued discussion about violence in the show and how violence gets negotiated in the labor movement in general. Um, I kind of like that there's not really any purely good character, except maybe Amelia so far. Um, Everybody is kind of, I don't know, wrestling with like their own morality and also the consequences of their own violence. Like, you know, Seth has this, 
several moments in this episode where you can just see him kind of caught between the fact that he knows how to kill people really well, I guess, uh, but he's also feeling remorseful about it or being held back by his own uh, put on faith, like his kind of false Christianity uh, holds him back from completely giving himself over to these violent impulses. Um, The way the violence just gets negotiated in general, both at kind of a human psychological level and then within the context of like real labor movements, um, I think is really well done. You know, like right in the beginning, I think Seth mentions that they're in the middle of a war um, and that kind of rhetoric really brings home the stakes, I guess, that are involved in the series. And I appreciated that. Um, and I think I liked, too, that episode two, just at a, at a kind of narrative level, has the patience that you can't really have in a first episode to really, you know, settle into some of these characters and let them talk to each other and just chill for a minute. Uh, the first episode kind of feels like getting everything out there on the table all at once, which you kind of have to do just to get people hooked. And I think I felt a little better about seeing these things unwind a little more uh, leisurely um, in a way that still, you know, keeps all the pressures there, but uh, lets you sort of remember who all the characters are as well, (laughs) which helps. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, maybe we can kind of move into more of a discussion of the episode itself. Does that sound good? Sure. Yeah. Last week, we kind of ended on this note where we were, Dean and I, we're kind of confused or like uh, incredulous towards uh, Seth nailing Sam Riley's body to the door of the church. Um, the but bank, that's exactly the where the episode. Oh, I'm sorry. The bank, not the church. That's that'd be even weirder. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, so that we were generally confused, incredulous. We had some some big feelings about that. But that's exactly where the second episode picks up on. Um, the opening shot is of uh, Seth uh, just dumping a big old. Uh, bucket of water on his naked self, uh, washing the blood away, and you kind of hear a little bit of an uh, uh, an introductory conversation from between he and Amelia um, about you know like what he was trying to do and accomplish, and you get the idea that uh, I mean you know we 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 talked about how it was a confusing thing last week, but this week I think it makes a little bit more sense now that we've seen that bit of the show um, where uh, basically Seth is he nailed Sam Riley's to the door uh, body to the door to you know pin the uh pin his death on the bank and okay i guess that makes sense symbolism is still kind of weird for me but fine um uh but it ends up kind of working a little bit at least it really um ends up motivating a lot of the farmers and even martha riley sam's wife uh who uh, becomes very sympathetic because of it um so i don't know that's where the episode starts there's a really fascinating kind of dialogue about the ethics of that event throughout and Seth himself kind of allows that ambiguity to proliferate. Right. And he even leans into the idea that maybe the bank did this to kind of rub it in or something. Uh, mm-hmm. And I thought that was wild because it puts Seth almost in a certain analogous position to even Connie Nunn, like shooting people on both sides of the minor strike just to sort of escalate. I mean, clearly not the same, but like, uh, they both are kind of playing with the ambiguities in order to stoke the fires. And that raises some really uncomfortable uh, questions that, that just kind of are allowed to hang there. And I think that's very good. Like, I, I guess it just affirms that you should have felt uncomfortable at the end of the last episode. And that feels good. I don't know, Jay, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I um, The first time I watched it, I don't think it bothered me as much as it did you both. But after listening to your first show I went back and watched it again and I totally get it and there is like this you know it's not a um I think that that the 
you know, Tony Toasts, right, knows that it's probably uh, a bit of a reach. Um, and that's why um, the characters kind of wrestle with it a little bit after the fact. Um, you know, the interesting thing is sort of uh, in the first scene when Amelia asks, um, asks Seth what it felt like. Um, and he says, nailing, uh, you know, he says, uh, I don't have the exact quote, but he basically yeah. says, nail- nailing, you know, nailing Sam's body felt like touching God. Yeah. Um, you know, and so it's interesting, you know, I think that Seth is, Seth's a very interesting character, right? And it's, and supposed to be, you know, and supposed to be sort of leaving you with these questions of like, you know, how much faith does he really have you know i mean like my assumption going into it right is that he's a communist that is taking on the role of a of a preacher in order to agitate within a rural community um you know but i think that there is this piece throughout it you know and it's the same thing when he's going to later on Um, he, you know, we'll get into like the black legion, but basically he confronts a black legion member who's, who he's discovered, um, and does not kill him as you mentioned in the the synopsis, because he sees like a, a, a light, a cross made by like the sunlight basically, um, next to him, um, and ends up basically, you know, saying like, you're going to be an informant for me from now on. Otherwise I will kill you. Um, but it, you know, there is like this, I think question sort of with his level of violence, right. Of, of like, and it, it's alluded to throughout the episode of, you know, his history of killing people, um, Creeley, you know, warns, um, warns Amelia about it as well. Um, and so you're supposed to, I think, sort of see him as a character that goes over the line sometimes. Um, but in some ways, I think that's also sort of a way of showing what the stakes were like in many ways, um, within, you know, not necessarily to that degree, like, obviously it's an extreme thing to like nail somebody up to a bank, but, um, you know, there was a lot of violence, right. In this period within labor struggles, people, people did die and were killed, um, you know, obviously coming out of the Russian Revolution, but even within U.S. history, this was very, you know, common in that era. So, um, you know, I think that that's kind of the space it's operating in, um, you know, with kind of that ambiguity about about his religion and his use of religion um, and kind of how heavy handed he can be with it at times. Um and you made the point in the first one about like he cusses in church and stuff like that. Like there's, there's parts <laughs> about his preaching, right. That don't seem, they seem kind of outlandish to folks. Right. Because, and I think partly because, you know, I think it, some of it has to do with just the theology and, and sort of what ministry is, has become so, you know, fit within how politics are these days. Right. So it's either like sort of liberal or it's, conservative um but you know we don't think as much about you know actual communists but of course in a time a period in time when you know there were hundreds of thousands of people who identified as communists or socialists in the united states then it makes sense that there would be uh ministers within that 
realm as well. Uh, well, what you're just saying just reminds me of we've talked about Father Thomas Haggerty on this podcast before who wrote that article uh, in Commonweal about and uh, Haggerty is so fascinating. He's one of the founders of the IWW. But one of the things that really sticks out to me is this is a guy who's doing all the regular things that a priest does, right? Like he baptizes babies. He's giving people uh, the Eucharist. He's like saying mass uh, in Latin at this point. Uh, you know, like he wears the collar, the whole nine yards. Uh, but he's also organizing labor. And the line that always sticks out to me is at one point he has been like translating all this socialist material into Spanish. And the obviously like these railroad uh, companies who employed Mexican railroad workers didn't like that. So they send him this, this message, you know, telling him to stop. And he tells the messenger to go back to the people that sent him and tell them that he can like hit a he can shoot a dime at like 10 paces or something. Uh, and it's like, a, you know, he, he's like threatening them that he will for sure murder them. And uh, it's so crazy to think of like a Catholic priest doing that. But like, it's bizarre because you could you could see Seth as completely unbelievable um, but there are like real life, actual people you can point to in the history of the United States who, you know, maybe were not as severe or maybe even as kind of cynical as, as Seth is in some cases. But like, you know, there were there were men of the cloth who were like willing to get dirty for it. And I think that's a really, really crazy thing that people don't really think about these days. Yeah, I was. Um, so I pulled out a passage from Hammer and Ho, um, which was talking about like. I mean, if you don't, for people who don't know what it's about, it's a, it's a, it's Robin D.G. Kelly. It was his um, uh, dissertation. It's Alabama communists during the Great Depression. Um, but like, there's this part where he's talking about the CIO and um, basically, you know, the Communist Party's, um, you know, use of the CEO, CIO as like their struggle of the time. Um, and it's a, you know, it has a quote. Um, from this minister, Brother Harris, um, you know, and basically says, if you substitute God for union and devil for employer um, and hell for unorganized, you would have found, you would have had a rousing sermon. Um, but it, then it says, during the CIO, CIO's formative years, mine mill members, which was um, like one of the most um, radical industrial unions within the CIO, um, but it said mine mill members forced several company preachers out of business, hired their own pastors and built their own churches. And a few men of the cloth held responsible for positions as union organizers, many of whom worked closely with known communists. Right. Like that's a good like just kind of to back up what you're saying, Dean. Um, you know, this was not an uncommon thing. Dang, that's a really great reference um, that helps bring it all into perspective. And, you know, these things, I mean, Hammer and Ho and also Thomas Haggerty, they're all happening at the same time. So great, great references for real things. Um, well, I'm into that. Maybe we can circle back around to um, a phrase that turns up in the very beginning of the episode that comes up, uh, you know, a bazillion more times, too. Um, so just like we were talking about, I don't know, a few minutes ago, um, when Amelia asked Seth what it was like to nail Sam Riley's body up. Uh, he said it's like touching the body of God and uh, God's body is this phrase that is repeated throughout this episode, but it's also the name of the very last episode, something that we'll talk about in a few weeks. Um, but God's body is this big, this big idea that I think we should uh, maybe unpack for a hot second. It comes up again in this episode, too, when uh, Seth is in the church with all of the uh, farm workers and he's talking about the the body of God, right, which is a pretty clear biblical reference. 
Um, but he's talking about how, you know, he wants, he wants the body, the body of God to, you know, be organized and to grow. Um, and then even later, uh, in the, this episode, um, when we see the sort of, uh, switch to Connie Nunn's storyline and she is hunting down, um, the minor, uh, the mine organizers in Harlan, um, she holds up a pamphlet that's written by Amelia that says, we are all God's body on the front of it. Right. So this is like a reoccurring phrase that Seth is using for, both political and religious purposes, right? That has a, a rhetoric that's in kind of two camps. So um, I don't know. Maybe we can talk about that for a minute. Well, what do you guys think about all this uh, God's body stuff? Well, I, maybe I'll, I'll put some themes to kind of get us into it. Uh, maybe that'll spark something. Um, I mean, the thing that came to me to mind for me is that trope as it gets relayed through Paul in the Christian scriptures. Um, so, you know, there are those, those famous passages where, Paul is talking about how you should think of yourself within the, the the church organization. And he has those kind of lines about like the I can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Uh, I'm too good for you or whatever. And vice versa. Right. That there's this kind yeah. of diversity of, of gifts, um, but they all need to find a place to be part of the same organism. So it's a biblical metaphor that I think is really fascinating. Um, and I think that trying to map that metaphor onto labor struggles is actually really useful. I mean, we mentioned the IWW earlier, and maybe that's a good way to talk about it, right? The the one big union is such a fascinating idea because the whole premise is that all these different kind of unionized sectors have to find a way of supporting one another, uh, which means, you know, thinking very hard about how to uh, to make use of your own particular gifts or, or industries in order to benefit other people who are having a hard time and that sort of thing. Uh, so that's the kind of thing that just kept coming up for me that they're they're mapping a biblical metaphor really naturally actually onto a, a material kind of situation i thought that was really impressive yeah i think that makes a lot of sense to read it in that iww kind of way so that passage is from first corinthians um well it's from a lot of different places actually but it, at least it comes in first corinthians uh is one of the places right so paul's saying all these things about how uh you know the body the body is made up of all these constituent parts and they all work together. And like, you know, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Um, but we kind of see uh, an interesting articulation of what this means, like uh, in terms of eco- economics, um, right? I mean, like the, so God's body, right, is um, in in the sense, like in the church, right? It's all of these people um, kind of recognizing themselves as constituent parts of, of society, um, as people who, um, if they, if they, you know, pull the right levers of society can like, um, slow the body down. Right. If the, um, if Calvin Rumpel and Martin Eggers Hyde PhD say, you know, we don't actually need, uh, the farm workers, which is, you know, exactly what he says. Um, <laughs> when, uh, when Calvin Rumpel and, uh, Eggers Hyde PhD sit down together, um, you know, the farm workers, the eye can say, you know, well, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, if you think that you don't need us, then, you know, we will, we will break your fucking back. So, um, there's this interesting bodily, um, politics that's kind of worked out in the show, uh, in a pretty fascinating way. Um, it's, it's biblical and it's political at the same time. What more can you ask for? <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. How does that theme strike you, Jay? Like, we obviously are invested in it because we talk about this stuff all the time. And like, there's all kinds of bizarre associations that come up in my brain, at least with like incarnational theology or whatever, the body of Christ as this kind of mystical body. But I'm curious as to how that strikes people who aren't like, you know, constantly thinking about religion, <laughs> like, like I obsessively am for better or for worse. Uh, I mean, does that rhetoric even like land or do anything? Yeah, I mean, I think that it it does. You know, it's not a um, like they're not passages that I'm I'm fluent in at all. Um, but you know, 
I think for one thing, you also have to think about it in the context that it is in the show, right? And he's working within a congregation. Um, and seemingly the people within the congregation are, are very invested in the labor struggle that um, Seth is leading. But also, you know, they, they were coming to the church presumably before that, right? And, and so um, I think a lot of the way the sermons work, right, is sort of, um, and and the way Seth works, right, is in sort of convincing people, um, and this is actually, this actually does dovetail a little bit with one of the pieces I've been working on with, with abolition and spirituality as well, right, is that, you know, all the time societies, ruling classes within societies are using religion to tell people that they shouldn't have things, right? <laughs> that they should be comfortable where they are or that that God's plan, you know, is for them to be right where they are, right? And um, in order to use religion, you know, I think towards means, right, towards like a communist vision or um, a progressive labor movement vision, requires people to say sort of that that God wants you to change this world, right? Um, and, you know, so I think that within that, there's certainly um, biblical references that he's using throughout um, and then kind of combining them with, you know, stuff from Marx, stuff from the labor movement. Um, and so I think that's an interesting interplay. And I think in this episode, you're pointing out what seem, you know, I, I definitely recognize that referencing, um, throughout it. So, yeah. Um, well let's, uh, switch gears a little bit. Um, we've been talking a lot about the labor kind of stuff and how, how religion, you know, gets mediated in the show. But one thing that I thought was really fascinating and kind of wasn't expecting was the appearance of the black Legion in this episode. Uh, so I didn't know that much about the black Legion. I had kind of like a vague impression, I guess. So I did a little bit more research and, you know, surely someone is far more capable of talking about this than I am. But uh, apparently, so the Black Legion was part of the KKK and eventually kind of split off. But it's basically like it's pretty much the same thing, but it functioned as a, a paramilitary uh, defending Ku Klux Klan members. And so they're a, an explicitly armed wing of, of the KKK trying to, you know, um, assert that kind of intimidation even at a, a greater level maybe in some ways um than the the formal kkk uh i learned too that they're kind of like based in detroit um for the most part anyway so that makes sense that they're finding their way down into iowa i really like the the sort of midwest piece of this whole show um but yeah i mean matt you mentioned at the top of the the show here that there's this introduction of, of race uh, it hasn't come out quite as explicitly yet, but just the, you know, seeing the presence of the Black Legion already is is signaling that this is a, a piece of the whole puzzle. So what did you guys think, um, you know, watching Black Black Legion members just show up and shoot some people down uh, at the church? Yeah, I imagine if you um, if you've never heard of Black Legion, you might think that they're just like a weird fictionalization of the KKK. Uh, but nope, they're they're real and they're and they're strange and uh, they're terrible all, all at the same time. Um, so yeah, I mean, the representation you see in the show is just like people in black, a, a black KKK-esque uniform, right? Like a black hood and black robe, et cetera. And they got guns. Um, yeah, uh, the, um, I, I looked them up on Wikipedia and there's an extremely funny picture of these, of these goons. Um, so, uh, 
in the show they're they're represented in this one way on wikipedia there's this picture of them but where, where they have these like very cartoony like long john silver's pirate hats on uh with skull and crossbones and it <laughs> is a very silly picture and i can't believe that was really their uniform but i suppose it was but um yeah this is like where for the first time uh racist kind of or like you know white supremacy is inserted into the show and i think that's an important uh piece of that 1930s puzzle i mean it's an important piece of the 2019 puzzle too but um you know in 1930s uh where um you know white supremacist militias had a little bit more power than they do now it's uh, probably something important to um illustrate so yeah they drive by the church they shoot at the farmers um one of the black farmers gets shot uh, i don't remember his name uh he becomes an important character later but i can't remember right now um but yeah that happens so um it's a it's a reference to the ways that white supremacy plays into label labor organization for sure yeah and one of the things i liked about this too um you know in terms of how it's dealt with in the show is that what we discover as Seth confronts that member who's like a butcher or whatever um is that um that there is no unseen hand behind these guys right it's they're just racist pieces of shit basically right like they don't um they don't really care they're they're not being paid by somebody right or at least that's that's the way it's presented in the episode um and that you know they basically just don't want this they don't want the farmers striking they want you know to be able to get the goods at the lower prices they don't really care about the other people in the town and you know obviously they attack the church um and like you said the black character who gets shot you know he references like somebody asked like what are they doing here and he's like well you know yeah you know kind of like <laughs> i've got an idea yeah yeah um you know so it, you know, I think that that's, I, I think race in general in the series is not dealt with as, as much of an issue as it was within the labor movement at the time. Um, although it does, it does come up in different ways later on, but, um, but I think that, you know, it, it's certainly interesting. And I think, you know, I actually, I think I'd heard of the black Legion before, but I had kind of a similar, um, first impression that you did Matt, of like, Oh, this is like, you know, a, a sort of KKK, you know, depiction or whatever. But then, mm -hmm. you know, like a lot of things, um, in the show, when you Google it, you find out like, Oh no, this is, this is real. You know, um, it's the same also with, um, the woman, right. She works for, let me pull that up. Connie Nunn. So she's employed by the William J. Burns International Detective Agency, which is also a real thing. Um, yeah. You know, and also had a history of being hired to track down IWW organizers um, after the Wheatland Hop Riot in 1913. This is all Wikipedia stuff, so it's nothing fancy. Uh, <laughs> you know, but um, they also you know, were convicted for basically jury intimidation during the Teapot Dome scandal, which I don't expect people to know what that is, but it was one of the biggest presidential scandals in time, in history at the time. And it basically was like Harding's administration giving federal oil fields at like super low cost leases to oil companies in, in exchange for political contributions and things like that. Um, so, you know, these references are really on point in terms of pointing to the types of fascistic forces that were um, engaged in counter-revolutionary 
you know, efforts in reactionary organizing um, as as the labor movement was even at its height. Um, you know, and I think it, it also shows the violence that um, exists between both, you know, back and forth, but, you know, certainly coming, being initiated always by the kind of reactionary forces. Yeah. Uh, race is also interesting in this show so far. Like, you know, I'm only two episodes in, uh, in my brain, even I haven't seen the whole show, but uh, the way that it comes out subtly so far even is really fascinating. We haven't talked about Bessie much at all on the show so far, but yeah. she's just a very interesting presence and serves to, uh, complicate a lot of things that, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens you know she's a black uh, sex worker who can read and she also as we talked about in the episode description turns out to be the illegitimate child of the sheriff and she calls attention to that um, that the, there's a, a racial element there in their exchange when they have this confrontation that's really fascinating um, there's also the the presence of you know, a couple of black farmers within the striking movement. Uh, I'm curious to see how that plays out too, just because the history of, um, you know, race and racism within the labor movement is a really complicated thing to sort out. And again, talking about party affiliation earlier, the IWW and the CPUSA were both uh, famously distinct from other parts of the labor movement in that they wanted to integrate uh, striking and organizing and labor unions. So, yeah, I mean, the the like the Black Legion are the obvious sort of force of white supremacy, but I'm very interested in seeing the less obvious or, um, you know, more kind of socially present and, and permeating uh, parts of, of white supremacy as well. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there's more to say about that, but just to get it on the table anyway. Yeah, it's good to good to set that table. Um, speaking of setting the table, maybe we can talk for a second about the sheriff, just like really briefly. Um, he's one of my least favorite characters um, with my with the least favorite storyline, but we should probably just mention that he exists so that next week and the week after and the week after that, we can reference it. <laughs> so there's a sheriff in town. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Don Berryman. That's the sheriff's name. Um, anyways, he's just kind of like, uh, I don't know. At one point, one of the farmers described him as he used to be a bloodhound, but now he's just a politician, just all just worried about getting elected. Um, so in this episode, you kind of see more of him and what he's about. Um, he is really suspicious of both Seth and, um, uh, and Creeley. He doesn't like Amelia's biscuits, which is really upsetting. Um, and uh, it's also revealed that he owns the speakeasy in town and also the brothel. So there we've said it. He's, <laughs> he's introduced as a character. He's suspicious of these two other guys. And uh, I don't know. It's just important to note loudly and verbally. Um, but maybe we, uh, unless you guys have anything else to say about uh, about the sheriff, we can transition to talking about uh, Martin Egger, uh, Martin Egger's Hyde, PhD. Uh, no, just that uh, Creeley also doesn't like her biscuits, so it's a theme. She uh, maybe she needs to work on the biscuits, but <laughs> I don't know. I mean, she's she's so busy writing uh, revolutionary literature that her biscuits <laughs> are suffering. It's fine. Just eat the biscuits, God. Yeah, that's a weird thing. I feel like it's a sort of. I feel like that's one of the stranger things because I feel like it's like some kind of commentary on patriarchy or on like gender roles in the period um, and on the fact that like she's not supposed to be a good cook, right, suggests that she's not like a, a real wife, you know, in some ways. And I think that's actually interesting a little bit because there is this 
tension in her relationship with Seth where you're kind of like, I'm, you know, and this may just be my projecting too, but like, I'm always curious because they know so little about each other's backstories, right. Of like, whether they're really like in a sort of authentic marriage or whether they're two revolutionaries, right. Who are sent somewhere to be husband and wife. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and obviously a relationship between them and, develops that seems to be you know you know that they're both consenting to and and happy with in some way but like um but that that question is sort of in my mind right because you just know so little about the backstory and to me it's just it's strange and they even allude to right like that we've been revolutionaries jumping from town to town right and so Mm -hmm. um you know there's this question in it for me always of are we supposed to believe that they're just independently start trying to start a revolution or that they're part of something um, larger that's, that's, you know, that exists outside, but you don't, you, you don't see that at least in the first couple of episodes. I don't know if we'll see it before the end of the show or not, but yeah. Uh, well, as we sort of come up on the last uh, few minutes here of the show of our show, uh, we should definitely talk about Martin Nickers Hyde. Uh, we should also talk about the strike in the middle of town and uh, we should come back to that cross image at the very end. Um, so let's do that. Uh, Martin Eggers Hyde, PhD. He's really into Twinkies. He's uh, he he comes across as the you know entrepreneurial genius, whereas Calvin Rumpel is just a, a useful idiot, even though he's a banker. Um, and uh, yeah, what do you make of this spooky guy, spooky capitalist in the background pulling a few more strings a couple levels up? Well, he's like a 20th century Elon Musk for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, he has like a weird accelerationist uh, vision of the future um, where the, you know, all those unwashed rural masses, they were once, you know, necessary to live in a civilized world, but not anymore. The future is all Twinkies. And even though that sounds like silly, I mean, I'm exaggerating, first of all, but it does sound silly. Um, you know, that type of. That much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Maybe not enough. Um, it's silly, but it's like, you know. It's like what capitalists actually believe, though, right? That like uh, industrialization will, um, you know, outpace the workers and automation will uh, uh, evolve the economy in so much as those unwashed rural masses, uh, they'll have to go figure something else out, just like it did in the, you know, the Industrial Revolution. Um, more industry means more displaced workers. And Martin Eggers Hyde is fine with that and in it for the money. So doesn't care about those uh, farmers at all. And uh, Kelvin, Kelvin Rumpel seems like he's ready to play along and eat a Twinkie. Yeah, it's interesting because I wonder, like, especially because they have the PhD, like, is he supposed to be sort of the theorist, right? Or the like, like, how much is he really the because he also alludes that there are people that are like backing him. Right. Yeah. He has a client. Yeah. yeah. And so like there's this question, right, of like how many layers, right, are we are we dealing with? But you know, he definitely is kind of like, I sort of saw him as like an, um, like an Ayn Rand type of (laughs) character, right? Like he's like, he has like, like you said, he sort of gamed it all out and theorized like how things are going to proceed. And, you know, now he's got his investors, you know, backing banks and different things to like price fix and screw over the unwashed rural masses as he refers to them. Um, You know, so it's a, he's a, obviously sort of the most contemptible figure that we've met yet. Um, but I think, again, like, that's one of the things that I do like about the show is that 
people are actually acting upon like an ideology, right? Or, mm. or some sort of, you know, so the forces are not just, you know, other than like the Black Legion, although they're still acting out an ideology, right? It's, it's Americanism and a white version of that. But, um, but you know, so everybody has like um, some sort of theory or whatever that's behind it. And it's not just people doing random things. Yeah, that's good. There's motivation for their actions. Yeah. Uh, really quickly, before we move on, uh, what do you guys think that Martin Eggers Hyde PhD, uh, what, what's his PhD in? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say question. economics. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Yeah, economics feels right, but I want it to be like uh, uh, 19th century British literature. <laughs> uh, yeah, he actually uh, went to the University of Phoenix and he uh, has a PhD in like leadership studies. And uh... <laughs> uh, now that's that's definitely 2019 Martin Eggers Hyde PhD. <laughs> Martin Eggers Hyde 2019 would not have a PhD. He would have dropped out of college uh, after he had a galaxy brain take about how he could, um, you know, like start a company that makes uh, uh, public transit private or something. <laughs> yeah, so he is Elon Musk. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Uh, let's talk about this farmer strike because this is kind of the you know the big moment, I guess, of this episode. You could say, at least in terms of the political piece, right? There's lots of narrative moments, but this is the big political shift. Uh, so the first episode, they're holding the line, and then um, there's a moment where a DL a journalist guy, DL Sullivan, tells um, Seth that like nobody actually knows that the bank is price fixing, so they can't really understand what the strike is about, right? Uh, which is a really profound point. And Seth takes it to heart, and so he organizes this this information rally, you know, so that everybody can just march to town and explain uh, the bank is price fixing, and this is why we're doing it, and we're not, you know, just crazy people or crazy farmers, they're selfish or whatever, this is about all of us together. Um, and so that marks a, a change in tactics in the political struggle, and it's worth talking about that for a moment, so... Yeah, I mean, Seth delivers this rousing speech, uh, and but I think the the best part of it, and it's just sort of, it's not exactly a throwaway moment, but it's you know just little, uh, is when he actually hands over the speaking reins um, to Sam Riley's brother, who's first Preston. Name, Preston, yeah, <laughs> Preston Riley. And uh, at first he he's shocked, you know, that that he would be sort of asked, but he goes out and says he's got some things to get off of, off of his <laughs> chest. And uh, I love that because it's it's trying to empower people in the labor movement, right? And Seth isn't just the the great man of history or whatever. He's trying to to build confidence in the rest of the workers, so or, or the farmers. So I mean, it, it's a like I said, it's kind of an aside, but I think it's a really profound moment. Um, anything else to get to you guys about that scene? I mean, I just would echo that I think that. I think it's also very real, right? Like, I think that that if you've been to rallies, if you've been to actions, if you've been around, you know, parties or unions, like th that is often, you know, like sort of passing the mic to uh, a younger comrade who's like starting to get their feet wet into, you know, public speaking and, and that sort of thing. It's a very common thing, I think, in terms of how you sort of develop cadre and get people, you know, more invested. So I think that it actually... Um, even though he's sort of passing the mic just so he can go chase after the um, Black Legion guy, um, it does play that role as well. I love that he 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 does it though to Preston because Preston like throughout the throughout the show he's like um, 
he's Sam's brother. He's like helpful, right? Because he's helping uh, Seth track down the Black Legion guy, like with the trail of blood or whatever. But also he's like, I don't know, the he's like the member of the Riley family who always seems to be drinking um and like uh seems a little little bumbling but yeah, uh yeah. in this in this one case he's just he's like okay preston you got this and preston's like oh i got a few things to say about this <laughs> all right um uh before we move on though uh dl sullivan is a really interesting character too i like him a lot um the there's like a uh like a kind of a montage thing at the beginning of the episode where um you know he's he's going from person to person in the community asking like well which side are you on right if this seems like a good intervention <laughs> politically speaking so like which side and you know he's getting getting people's like uh getting people's take on the question i think that's a really cool thing yeah um, one, one of them sorry to interrupt you but one of them is the uh the black legion butcher uh which I think oh that's really right interesting yeah 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 good point well yeah so um and then when it comes to the actual rally, DL is he's there and like asking Seth like what's up, and Seth's like, well, you know, if you see someone bleeding from their arm, like let me know, and uh, DL points him out, right? So DL Sullivan's such a cool character because he is, well, I mean, like he seems like a an intelligent journalist um, with literary aspirations, <laughs> but also he is a journalist who's on the side of the workers, so that's something. Yeah, he's working on that novel, a real Upton Sinclair type. Yeah, yeah, that's right. An Upton Sinclair type. Um, all right. Well, here's the last thing that at least I was super interested in. Uh, and that is this moment when Seth sees that cross, right? He ha- he has this uh, Black Legion member's life in his hands. He has like a gun literally in his mouth, right? And it's this really powerful scene because all throughout the episode, you're getting certain glimpses through Creeley and others into the and, and through Seth himself into his capacity for violence. And it seems like a real moment of temptation, I think. Uh, and I actually really loved how it was handled because, you know, he's, he's sort of there with bare life in front of him. And then he looks over and sees the light playing and it creates this cross and Seth, you can see him agonizing over the decision to end this person's life or not. And he almost sort of chuckles to himself that he is surprised that this moment is holding him back, that it's making him have second thoughts. And I loved that so much. Uh, there's something very profound about it. And and again, like you've been saying, Jay, the word is kind of real, right? Like this is a very real reaction uh, that a person might have. Obviously not in such an extreme situation, but just in daily life that these kind of coincidences occur. And this happens to all of us, I think, at one moment or another. You know, you see something you kind of, whether or not it's real doesn't make a difference, but it, it causes you to just think twice about what you're doing. Uh, and I love, I loved that moment. And I love that it, it was, it was a moment where he sort of allowed the faith that he is playing out to become a real force in his life. It, it reminds me of that line that Amelia has in the first episode where she sort of asks Seth if he's really starting to believe in this stuff kind of playfully. And, you know, in this moment he, he does, at least for a, for a second, he kind of believes in at least the, the message of of Christ and peace or something. And of course it doesn't turn him into a pacifist by any stretch, uh, but it, it causes him to relent or have this kind of moment of grace for, for just a second. Um, so I don't know that, that moment really affected me probably more than anything else than in this episode, but uh, I'll toss it over to you guys. Um, anything stick out to you in that scene or any other scenes as we kind of wrap up uh, Damnate the Cast episode two? Um, yeah. I mean, I think that the thing with that scene for me too, is like after you know, he makes the decision. He also quickly pivots to like figuring out how to sort of use his, you know, he's just given this guy mercy, right. Who, who just shot at him, just tried to kill him. Like that's part of it too. Um, and, um, 
you know, he, he makes the decision, right, that he's going to, like, now try to make this guy, um, you know, a source or um, a snitch within the Black Legion so he can know what they're doing and what they're planning. Um, and I think that's, you know, obviously, like, tactically, that's a very smart move if you're going to show somebody like that mercy, right, which... You know, he's a fascist. He just shot his friend. Like, it's not, you know, but um, but I think that, um, you know, he makes a, a smart choice there after this, you know, this sort of, like you say, the kind of biblical moment or whatever, right, from from seeing that that cross. Um, so that's definitely one of the scenes um, that stood out to me. Yeah, Um you see the you see the dual natures of Seth, right? He's on the one hand, like um, at at least in this moment, like uh, you know, believe it, believing in um, God in some way, or enacting, I don't know, some kind of Christian ethic in this like one moment. But then you see him, like, yeah, pivot that into um, you know his overarching mission or whatever, right? To use him as a as like a, a source, and that makes sense, you know. But like, what I really love about all of this though is how how complicated that makes Seth as a character. That like, you know, like we're this is the second episode, and like it's it's pretty clear at least that Seth is not like you know a pastor in the ways that other people are pastors, right? It's not like that. Seth like actually is a pastor in vocation, right? He's a revolutionary in vocation. Um, but like what's so interesting though, is that even in light of that sort of like, you know, farce as pastor or whatever, there's never like a mea culpa moment where he's just like, no, I don't really actually believe any of this. I'm just here to like, you know, um, be revolutionary. I'm just here to like sort of stir up trouble and organize the workers. There's never this moment where he just pronounces his disbelief, like very clearly and absolutely. Um, it's always kind of a, a matter of, you know, like, um, He's he's playing the game he he's playing the game of pastor extremely hard and he's not just like going to you know have like a secret double life or something right he's he's going to be the pastor through and through even if he's not really a pastor or something so I don't know I still like that about Seth that's still my favorite thing about the show I love it <laughs> yeah same I agree um, keeps me into it well. Uh, thanks so much, Jay, for coming on the show and just sharing with us a bit. Really fun. And we were so glad that you jumped at the chance to talk to us. Um, we were kind of like thinking about whether or not we would ask people to do this with us because we were like, would anybody actually want to? <laughs> uh, and it was great, uh, especially that you were so quick to be on the ball. And now we're thinking about other folks, too. Um, so we'll keep on watching. And uh, also, please be sure to check out the projects that Jay is working with. Um, Millennials are Killing Capitalism is a fantastic podcast. Uh, they just had a really great episode on the Venezuela embassy protectors. Um, and uh, yeah, all the other projects that Jay is into are always, I don't know, I feel like you're kind of like a moving target, but in the best possible way. Like every time I uh, scroll through my Twitter or something, you're, you've got your hands in some other uh, very interesting project or, or somebody else's. Um, so thanks again, Jay, for joining us and uh, keep up all the good work. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. And it was fun talking to you and appreciate everything that you're both doing as well. Thanks for listening to the Damnificast. If you're hearing this episode, it's because you um, already support us on Patreon. You're, um, which side are you on? The subscribing side. Oh my <laughs> the God. right side. The right the side ghost of the ghost of Pete is going to come back and kill us for saying that. <laughs> and you know, and he's right for so. doing it, honestly. I think. <laughs>
<laughs> I think Pete Seeker would want people to support us on Patreon. <laughs> oh man, I hate this. <laughs> I hate this world that we've built for ourselves. <laughs> well, uh, we really appreciate all of your support for the Magnificast over the last two years. Um, it has been overwhelming that even a hundred people would listen to our dumb podcast. But look, so many people are. <laughs> It's incredible. Uh, your support has given <laughs> us the opportunity to make this podcast, uh, the Damnificast, and also um, you kind of helped us get a little bit more ambitious with the Magnificast. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Thanks for all of the all the hard-earned money you gave us. Uh, you can um, expect more Damnificast episodes in the coming weeks, and also just some more Magnificast episodes with some cool people. We got a lot of um, good interviews lined up and some good episodes lined up. Uh, I'm out of school for the semester and uh, boy, am I devoting every moment of my time to thinking about this. Um, <laughs> so uh, just expect all of my energy uh, in this podcast, I guess. Yeah. And the, uh, the reading group is coming oh, up right. as well. Uh, if you want to get on that and you hadn't heard about it, we're doing a reading group on the book communism in the Bible by Jose Maria Miranda. Uh, no, Jose Portero yeah. Miranda? Jose Miranda, nevertheless. <laughs> uh, I was thinking of Jose Maria Cizan for some reason. Um, in any case, we're talking about communism in the Bible, and we're going to do a reading group uh, together in uh, in July. So if you're into that, uh, stay tuned and just keep an eye out, I guess. Cool. So we'll see you next week for episode three, One Penny. One Penny.